Welcome to the Inclusive Mental Health Podcast, Crossroads in Therapy by Belong. In this podcast, we will put therapy under a magnifying glass and enkindle the spirit of intersectional mental health. In each episode, we talk to experts with adequate professional and personal experiences in tackling mental health challenges faced by marginalized communities. The title for today's episode is The I Word in Therapy Work with Children. According to the National Mental Health Survey of India 2015-16 the prevalence of mental disorders in the age group 13 to 17 years was 7.3% social markers such as caste class ethnicity gender and sexual orientation among others can impact a child's mental well-being but are the mental health workers who engage with children well equipped to cater to their experiences of biases and prejudice In this episode we bring on board Kasturi Chetia a clinical psychologist working at Children First India an organization working tirelessly to create a safe inclusive therapeutic space for children from marginalized communities in her work she engages with children adolescents young adults parents teachers social workers along with a host of national and international organizations stay tuned as we try to understand the need to rethink inclusion in general mental health practices and try to deliberate on the possible solutions to build capacity of mental health professionals to undertake that shift hi kasuri welcome to our episode for today hello saranj it's so good to be here today kasuri you work with children adolescents and young adults in various capacities in your experience how does a client's socio economic cultural background influence their mental health needs Okay so we can begin to answer this question by first and foremost acknowledging that our mental health or our mental health needs don't exist in isolation and that it is definitely lesser recognized in a country like India but our mental health is impacted by a lot of intersections of identities right whether it's gender whether it's sexuality whether it's class age caste the region we come from the languages we speak religion disability all of that comes together to define our mental health too right and i'd like to believe and i speak about this with a lot of people that it's time that we all own up that we all struggle with mental health difficulties just like physical health difficulties from time to time and that some struggle a little more than others for sure but we all struggle with it at some point in time right and that people from all different socio economic cultural backgrounds have their own kind of you know unique or very commonly shared mental health needs in some capacity or the other but where socio economic status really comes into place is you know that children from higher socio economic status and i want to emphasize on the word access here have more access to awareness have more access to education access to resources availing services for mental health concerns in comparison to someone who may be coming from a you know the lower socio economic status yeah and a lot of research in past in decades have have shown how people living in financial hardships have are already at so much risk of mental health difficulties in comparison to people with higher socio economic status yeah and this socio economic difficulties inequalities are present for people with financial hardships in the forms of resources or opportunities or education health jobs yeah and while people might talk about how adults with financial hardships might be struggling but also children adolescents young adults also struggle at the same time yeah with similar concerns with similar difficulties with accessing with similar difficulties with resources and what makes this 
even more taxing and even more difficult is this often heard stigma, shame and silencing that happens around mental health. This othering that happens, ki, you know, ki mental health, ko thoda sa, you know, we can shun it away or it's not something that really requires that prior importance. And while I want to acknowledge that there's been a lot of work decades and decades for which, you know, the stigma, shame has been discussed and conversations are happening, but it still exists in a lot of sectors. Yeah, so that education and that awareness, once that access is only not really possible and there, it is going to be, you know, more of a vicious cycle where difficulties to get that kind of help for children is going to be problematic. Mm-hmm. And Kasturi, you started your work at Children First in 2019. Yes. Can you share the role of Children First in providing you the space to expand the scope of your practice? Mm, oh, absolutely. Yeah. This brings back really good memories. But let me start by giving you a little background about me before I joined Children First as an organization. I was a clinical psychologist training for two years and I was training at a government hospital. So, you know, the structures that are in place at most hospitals have a very medical model based work that happens. So a hospital, it has patients, it has doctors, psychologists, social workers, nurses. So you get the picture, right? It's a very, very medical model based. While I want to acknowledge that I had some really fantastic exposure with the kind of clients I got to work with, the kind of clients that I interacted with. And I take a lot of pride in what I learned during my tenure there. But during the cause, even before that, there's always been this sense of conflict that I've always felt, you know, with the way the dominant practice or the dominant discourse around how mental health sectors are looked at in our country. You know, like the whole model that is so medicalized didn't fit in very well with me. I felt that it wasn't very much in alignment with my beliefs, with my values, or the hopes I had of, you know, working as a clinical psychologist. So when I joined Children First, it was like a breath of fresh air because I got to meet my colleagues. I got to, you know, work with some really fantastic clients with some amazing journeys and, you know, with psychiatrists, with psychologists who really resonated with the kind of beliefs that I had. So I was able to navigate through therapeutic work, assessments, conversations in the office about therapy, about psychology that truly aligned with my with my own belief system. So, for example, viewing the personal being political, this is not something that is even heard of in the very medical setup because when clients come to us in a very medical setup, it's usually, okay, the patient is there, patient's talking about their signs, they're talking about their symptoms, a diagnosis is given, and we work on those signs and symptoms, right? But nobody's really looking at how this problem may not really be located in the person, but it might be coming from a very systemic, very collective, very political lens. So I got that space where people were having this conversation, which people are having it otherwise also, but in the very dominant spaces where it exists, these conversations were missing. So being able to locate the problem from a very larger sociocultural context where conversations about normative judgments were being had, about discourses were being happening, about how we can learn to stand up to those things and how we should not locate people as the problem was also happening. So that was something that was like a very, very, like I said, breath of fresh air and stepping away from the expert position, I think. Yeah. So again, this is not to make comparisons in terms of how things have been working in most medical setups, but 
I have never aligned with the expert position because in most structures that are already in place, it comes from the space that, you know, the doctor sab knows it all or the psychologist is going to tell you how to live your life. And I always found that very burdensome and very difficult to sit with. So stepping away from the expert position to really say that I like to see myself, you know, as a practitioner who is just very curious, who wants to ask all the, you know, right questions to individuals, to families, to communities, where we can all reflect together. We can become aware of our struggles, believe that, you know, people are expert in their own lives, with their own set of skills and abilities because hardships are not new to people. They experience those hardships and they know how to tackle them already. It's just how do we bring those narratives into the you know, into the forefront and at the same time finding commitments and dreams that people hold on to. Yeah. And something that I have worked even before as a trainee or things that I believed that I would, this is something I would take back to my work and which I do even right now is basically just at the core of it to make sure that to create a safe, respectful, very non-blaming, very inclusive space for people to witness their very courageous and brave journey. And I think at Children First, we also do a lot of uh, community-based work. So we try and reach out to, of course, children, young adults, adolescents, parents, schools, teachers, very, very important stakeholders. So we reach out to members of various diversity, various backgrounds, and to be able to also reach out and do such large-scale community work. So these are some of the things that I feel I'm able to think that has expanded the scope of my practice. Thank you for sharing the story. I think like this particular shift from a medical setup to a non-medical centric setting might have been quite a shift. Hmm. I wanted to know how your practices, your work hmm. over the years with clients, especially children and adolescents, has become more inclusive. Okay. Yeah. First, I also want to say that yes, Saranj, the, the kind of systems and education spaces that exist makes it very difficult to stand up to it. So being in a government setup, being in that hospital, some of it is great where you get to have so much exposure and you get to learn so much from there. But at the end, it's also important to just move away from that lens of pathology, you know. So that has been, I would like to say, very almost like a sense of relief for me to move away from, to find, and most education systems, sometimes we have to get by with systems that are already in place to reach a space where we can hear things that actually work for us well and align with the we want to work as professionals. So yes, it was very tough, but it's also very rewarding at the same time. Yeah. But to answer your question about how has my work with my clients become more inclusive, I think my understanding of inclusive therapeutic spaces is that it comes from a sense of belief that people of all identities deserve equal access to to quality, mental, and physical health care. And I keep this, this sense of belief at this value at the center of my therapeutic work, and it all goes from there. But I don't want to make it sound so simple that there is a value system, and therefore I'm driven to work towards that. Like I've spoken about the shifts in the systems at place, for me also has been very, very rewarding, but it comes with a lot of hard work because the things that we are taught in the education system versus that update that has not happened in, in terms of the stuff that we already study in our academic curriculums. I think that we get to learn. That's something that I have learned and adopted to making my therapeutic spaces 
space more inclusive. So there are quite a few things that I do very intentionally with a lot of hard work, a lot of mindfulness. Just a few that I want to mention here is I've become extremely, extremely careful in understanding and acknowledging my position in the society and keeping a check on my privileges, privileges that I've had, that I continue to have, keeping that in check every time I'm interacting with a client in therapy. It may be something that I had missed out years ago when I was interacting with clients, but I've realized the repercussions of it. I've realized the amount of accountability that as psychologists, as professionals in the mental health sector, we have. So to keep that in check has been super essential for me. So I do a lot of check-ins with myself about keeping my own privileges, keeping my own position in the society in check. And, you know, I can't say this enough. I have this conversation with whoever I meet, with colleagues, with friends, that psychology as a subject is very culturally, very socially, very academically. It has always in some way or the other mirrored these big power structures of our larger society, you know, like racism, like patriarchy, like sexism. Yeah. And it continues to be that in so many capacities, so many sectors, so many spaces in our country where these mental health facilities are provided. These continue to be the dominant structures that we work under. Yeah. And I have become aware that these very oppressive therapy practices have harmed people from the, you know, with marginalized identities for a very, very long time. So to basically become aware of that, to educate myself, to unlearn and to relearn has been very, very important for me. These are just some things that I've been doing, you know, putting in a lot of effort every day to make sure that the therapeutic space is more inclusive, which also includes, this reminds me of biases. Honestly, I think as human beings, we all have our own biases because, you know, we all have had an upbringing with a social fabric being kept in mind. And we have our histories, our families, our neighbors that we grew up with. And we grew up to have certain biases because of our own histories, right? So to just become aware again of what are some of the biases that I hold, where are these biases coming from, engaging with them, finding spaces to reflect on them, bringing it up in supervision, making sure that the biases I keep are not reasons that should be interfering in a therapeutic setup. So to do something about that, even though biases might come up, you know, we are always trying to keep our biases in check, but if they do come up, are there certain things we can do? How can we take accountability for them? Yeah. So I think mostly that, and I do a lot of check-ins with my clients and I do check-ins with them in the form of check-in breaks. We do feedback where we try and collaborate how the sessions are going or, you know, even young kids, very, very young kids can tell you how therapy sessions are going for them. Is it going, are they feeling heard? Are they feeling understood? Is the pace okay? Is there anything that they're feeling conflicted with? Can we change the way therapy is going for them? So regular check-ins and always keeping the belief that clients know the best and to be able to, you know, really ask questions, listen and honor the client's experience of different identities, their own experiences. While this might be such a rewarding thing, and I, and I would encourage mental health professionals to really commit to inclusive therapy spaces, I also want to acknowledge that it is super hard. And because of the dominant structures that we've been educated in and I have honestly felt very uncomfortable at times, very challenged at times. But I think it's so important that we try and adopt to things that are more important for the client's needs at the moment. Yeah. And and of course for therapists, I practice a lot of self-compassion for myself and I tell myself that I'm only learning, I'm only unlearning, and I'm relearning again. So mm. growing with time. <laughs>
Yes, yes. I do hope that we are able to convey this message across. Taking forward our discussion on the intersection of psycho and social, children from marginalized communities have differing mental health needs. Yeah. In my conversations with school psychologists as well as children psychologists, it has been made evident that a majority of the practitioners don't have the capacity to cater to such diverse needs. Why do you think that's the case? Absolutely. I agree with you that children from marginalized communities do have differing mental health needs. And I, again, agree with you that often mental health practitioners in our country don't have that capacity to cater to such diverse needs. But again, I'm going to go back to, to a very important aspect that we discussed almost like theme of our conversation today. It's about intersectionality, right? So, you know, on Instagram, on social media platforms. So when you meet people, when you go to parties, conversations about intersectionality is booming. And it's fantastic for people to be able to acknowledge and recognize how it works and why it's important. But let's go back a few decades, a few years ago. I don't think these conversations were happening. Or even if it was happening, it was happening in very small sections, very, very small sections in different parts of the country. Yeah? So I'm talking specifically about the mental health sector in our country. And even if we look at our education systems now where psychologists get trained, I've come from that training. And, you know, we are still being taught old age concepts of Western knowledge. The books are the same. The theories are the same. So we are just continuing. And it's like we have a little blueprint that we sit on. And that's all that's there. There cannot be a global template where we feel that one size fits all is very important. Yeah. So the way people are being trained, it still doesn't include conversations of intersectionality. You know, For example, if someone comes and talks about anxiety, now, we're not going to make assumptions that anxiety looks the same for everybody. Anxiety looks different for different people. So anxiety might come for one child or a young adult or an adolescent from being bullied at school for not being able to speak English well because that's not the first language that they've learned. That's not the mother tongue. Or it might come for somebody who might not have access to education because, you know, because of the gender they identify with. So it comes from different spaces of intersectionality. But that's what we need to understand because the model that is already at place in most dominant sectors is that, you know, anxiety hair, symptoms are these, signs are these, breathing exercises, grounding techniques. And I'm not saying the breathing exercises and grounding techniques don't work. Those can be definitely ways to manage it, but at the same time, not hearing where the person's anxiety is emerging out of, you know, is it emerging out of because we are not being inclusive of the different identities that they come with or the histories that they come with can be very, very problematic. But to just answer your question, there is a lack of education around intersectionality, but practitioners even today don't understand that many aspects of an individual's identity, you know, including their gender, age, race, again, geographical regions, language, religion, and even many more identities, they do not exist separately from each other, but they intersect to basically create a very complex identity. Yeah. So if you're talking about a change, this change has to happen at the very root level, which is basically the education systems, the courses in place, the trainings, Yeah, where people will have to say, that, okay, this is okay with, with what we have. How can we add intersectionality to it? How can we understand people from so close to their experiences, so local to their experiences, right? So again, learning, unlearning, educating, becoming aware is so important. And I also think in some capacity, the client to psychologist ratio in our country is very, very skewed. 
So that also definitely plays a very big role. You know, I think everybody needs mental health help from time to time. Mm-hmm. Anka, sorry, you have worked with Children First for a while now. Yes. Uh, I'm sure that your work exposed you to multiple mental health professionals as well as organizations working with children. Yes. Do you think that social biases are recognized by the mental health sector? So, you know, like I've told you before that, you know, I want to first say that we all have social biases yeah? and we all come with, you know, our own histories, our own backgrounds, our own learning, our own interactions with, in, with people in our own ecosystem. And that's how social biases are learned. Yeah? And it plays a role when we are interacting with our friends. It plays a role when we are interacting with anybody. It plays a role when we are at our office setups. It's present, yeah, and we all come with with social biases in some capacity or the other, yeah. But at the same time, it has to be kept in check. It absolutely has to be kept in check. Is something that I truly believe in. When I speak to my clients, I'm not going to. I can't speak for the absolute larger population, but when I speak to my colleagues or I speak to to people from other organizations or professionals in you know various spectrum of mental health difficulties, there are a lot of people who do speak about biases coming in. But I also feel that a section of the mental health professionals are super scared to almost acknowledge these biases because, you know, you must have heard that there's this thing called cancel culture that is at place, you know, where people are really being canceled for mistakes that they make or things that they say. So there is a big section of that that, that you know, who are absolutely fearful. There's a big section of people who don't absolutely recognize the social biases enter. And there is a big section of the society or the mental health sector that does acknowledge that you know, that biases come and sometimes they interfere in our therapy sessions. And what do we do with that? So therapists, I mean, I would like to believe that most therapists go through reflective space of their own. They seek supervision from other professionals. And that is the space to talk about their social biases. Where do they come from? What do they do? How is it interfering in your work? How can we take accountability for that? And how can we find ways to manage it? You know, is it okay for you ethically to have these social biases enter your therapy spaces? And if not, let's do something about it. In terms of mental health, I think our country is going through a very, very big shift right now. And I feel people are learning that we need to take accountability and keep in check. But there are people and there are sections of mental health professionals who are still yet to arrive at the fact that they need to recognize these biases. Hmm. Kasuri, you've mentioned that you've been in a medicine-focused setting previously. Mm. I was curious to know how does this pathologization of children's diverse needs impact their mental health well-being or their perspective towards the world? Yeah. Saranj, when I hear the word pathology, it definitely takes me back to my training days. And it makes me think of words like symptoms, signs, disease, disorder. And I might lose my train of thought here because I'm very passionate about this question that you're asking, but I'll try and stay on track because it has so many wheels. So I feel that firstly, again, because our books, our diagnostical manuals, the system, education system in place, things that the professionals use to treat people, it comes from that bigger power, oppressive systems in place. So what is normal and not is 
I find it very difficult to put my finger on that. And I feel just because somebody does not fit into someone's idea of normal, it may be looked as a sign or a symptom or diagnosis. I don't want to completely dismiss the, the importance of pathology. I feel like in my practice, I'm just taking this out of practice, that clients have really felt heard, understood, acknowledged, and they get a sense of closure when professionals believe what they're truly going through. So in government setups also, when I used to work, people would come with complaints like somebody has been possessed yeah, or somebody speaking in a voice that is not theirs. And when the family would hear, and this, let me tell you, would come after visiting a lot of temples, a lot of religious places. So then the last resort would be coming to a hospital. So to hear that there is a diagnosis for that, to hear that it's called dissociation for a lot of people brings them a lot of closure, almost a space to be heard for the family and for the family members, you know. So truly like that, for a lot of people, when they get a diagnosis of depression or anxiety or, you know, it's called trauma, if there is a word or a language to it, people feel very heard and understood. Or even if it doesn't have to be a diagnosable word, even in terms of somebody questioning their self-esteem, somebody having difficulties with transition, somebody experiencing bullying and the kind of impact that has that, just to know that this makes sense, it is okay to feel this way, gives a lot of closure to people. But at the same time, when we work with children, when we work with young adults, or even older people, I'm just thinking, is it enough to just treat the signs and symptoms when they come with their mental health struggles, right? And I've always questioned that because that's the model that's usually followed, how to manage your hurt, how to manage your panic or how to manage your anxiety at that moment, how to do the deep breathing, how to do JPMR. I'm sorry, I'm throwing some technical words there, but basically just only tackling the signs and symptoms because I truly think that human beings are complex beings with such nuanced experiences, identities, histories, values, beliefs, struggles, abilities, their own set of skills, their own dreams and hopes for themselves and their family members and their loved ones. And they cannot be just seen from one dimension, you know, the one dimension of signs, symptoms, diagnosis. Because I feel that if we do that, we are limiting a person's experience. We're limiting a person's hopes. We're limiting a person's beliefs about their own abilities. You know? So to answer your question, of course, just to look at from a very pathology perspective, it is going to have a lot of repercussions on young people. Their self-esteem, their confidence, thinking about their abilities, their relationships, it is going to show in different aspects of it. It is going to be spaces where they feel that they need to take a step back. And it can also lead to people being diagnosed again in the future or that becoming a vicious cycle. So I think that it's okay at some extent for pathology to be there, but I don't think that is the it and all for all answers. You know, again, pathology, again, the whole process of what is okay, what is not okay, what is truly a sign and a symptom without understanding the context and the cultural setting that one is coming from. I think those all things have to be kept in place before pathology. And then, of course, we go beyond pathology. It doesn't stop there. I'm sorry I went on for so long, but this is something that I truly, you know, because I've experienced both ends, I feel like I have a lot to say about that. No, no, definitely. I think five minutes wouldn't do justice. In your concluding remarks as a way forward, what do you think are the possible solutions to build the capacity for mental health professionals across the country to cater to the needs of children with diverse needs? How can organizations like Children First contribute to that shift? I'll answer your latter part first. How can organizations like Children First, of course, contribute to the shift is Children First as an organization has always been striving to work towards, you know, work with and cater to needs of children with young adults, 
adolescents with diverse needs. Because even when I joined the organization, the kind of value system that is in place in a place like this, I can make up that the starting of the organization was also kept with these things in mind. And it continues to be this way. So some of the ways in which we work together is we together have a lot of discussions. We together try and identify some of the very noticed and unnoticed discourses around. We try and find, do a lot of trainings to see how can we cater to the needs of children with diverse needs and we exchange ideas, we have our own collective uh, wisdom, try and create awareness within the organization, with everyone who works at Children First, and renew our commitments, continue to work on these commitments, you know, that, that will empower mental health professionals like me to get diverse inputs and awareness, like I said, about dominant discourses, finding ways to counter them, creating inclusive spaces, having conversations, and taking actions towards intersectionality. And a lot of it also comes from being exposed and interacting with the clients who come and share their stories with us. And of course, getting that opportunity to interact with different communities. But I think in essence, the shift is already happening and it's happened a long time ago in a lot of organizations and a lot of places. But even at Children First, we are trying to do the same. We interact with professionals, we interact with organizations, we interact with individuals, families, young kids, children, young adults, communities, and all the people who are like important stakeholders, community of concern for young children. So this is already an ongoing process or an ongoing journey. It's just that a lot of people are already in it and newer people are joining in this path. But to answer the first part of your question, basically, is that what are some of the solutions to build this kind of capacity? I think, like I've said before, making space for people of all identities, being aware of your own position and privilege in the society, keeping that in check, just being able to notice discourses and to work towards them and being accountable. I think it's so important that people are accountable for the work they do, the people they interact with, the clients and the community and the impact that they leave, right? And I'm just going to say to once, again, educate yourself, build awareness, make commitments towards that awareness. Don't just leave that information as something that you read and you're going to keep it away. Spread that awareness, like you said, with meeting professionals, interacting with them, you know, learning from scratch, even if that's required, because I have done that. It shakes the ground that you stand on because you are like, oh my God, I've completed like eight years of education and I'll have to learn all of it from scratch. Yes, you have to, you know. So I've had to do a lot of that. And of course, constant feedback from clients are going to be very important because they'll be able to tell you the best if you are being able to meet their needs, if you are being able to be inclusive, if you are being able to create that safe, respectful, non-blaming space for your clients and their families. So basically a lot of work has to be done. Definitely. And I hope that other practitioners or other mental health enthusiasts who are listening to this are able to take home quite many learnings. Thank you, Kasuri, for coming in and answering all these questions. Thank you so much, Saranj, for having me here today. And I'm so glad we could finally find this time to sit down and have this conversation today. Definitely a cherishing conversation. 